Welcome to Unabridged Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition. This podcast features unedited interviews from most of the participants in the documentary film project, Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition, released in 2021 by BK Scholar Productions. Each interview is introduced by Conversations director, filmmaker, and interviewer, Edwion Easy Stokes. This episode of Unabridged Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition, features veteran activist and philosopher Dr. Cornell West. This interview was filmed between 2017 and 2018 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 876-54321. Testing. Fantastic. Fantastic. Brother, you do whatever your artistry requires, man. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. No, thank you. I'm just going to ask you to introduce yourself and talk about the work that you're doing here at Harvard. Oh, my name is Cornell West, and I try to bear witness in terms of truth-telling and justice-fighting here at Harvard and any other context I find myself. The black radical tradition is characterized by a fearless speech, by a plain speech, by an unintimidated speech uh, that lays bare the truth. And the condition of truth is always to allow suffering to speak, the suffering especially of the most vulnerable, the most poor, the most abused, the most oppressed. Uh, So that when you think of figures from Harriet Tubman to Mary Lou Williams as an artist, Nina Simone, W. Du Bois, C.L.R. James in the Caribbean context, uh, Martin King, Malcolm X, Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer. I mean, these are all exemplary figures in the black radical tradition that spoke truths about suffering and and they were willing to put their bodies on the line to pay a cost based on what they saw and what they were trying to change. Um, as far as you're concerned, what's sort of like the earliest manifestation of the black radical tradition? And sort of walk us to a timeline to what it looks like now. Well, it started when the first slave wanted to be free. So I mean, that started on the boat, actually. There's a lot of uh, nameless Africans who we don't even know about who, who constitute the early stages of the black radical tradition. In terms of text, probably one good place to start is David Walker's Appeal to Colored Citizens of the World. That's probably the most uh, powerful expression of black radicalism, 1829, with words on a text. Now, uh, again, as I said before, we got a lot of action, a lot of deeds, slave insurrections, uh, slave acts of resistance, plantation in the big house. But intellectually, I would probably start with, uh, with David Walker's appeal. How did you get involved in the movement? Um, was there a specific incident that led to you sort of jumping off the sidelines into action? Or talk about what are the conditions that produced a Cornell West? Well, I mean, it goes back to Clifton and Irene. It's just black family, Shiloh Baptist Church, a black church that taught me to have integrity and try to tell the truth and try to love. Uh, black people, 
try to love everybody, but begin by loving black people. And when Martin was shot April 4th, 1968, I was 13 years old, and that hit me very, very hard. I was a track star and was involved in sports, music, women and things. And uh, Martin's death has caused a real transformation inside of me. Uh, something inside of me died, has never come back to life. And so there's a sense in which that was pivotal because the Black Panther Party was right down the street from Shiloh Baptist Church in Sacramento, California, uh, that I was always deeply moved by their courage and deeply influenced by their class analysis and their analysis of empire, of imperialism, capitalism. Uh, they were critical of homophobia. They were critical on the page of patriarchy, but in practice that was another thing. Uh, but they were very influential. So I was reading a lot of Franz Fanon and Karl Marx and uh, mentioned C.L.R. James, a uh, whole host of uh, radical thinkers early in my uh, teenage years. What is liberation theology? And sort of, when you talk about that, can you sort of talk about the role of the black church in the context of the black Christian? Well, James Cone, of course, was the detailing figure who created liberation theology. Uh, in the modern world. And he comes out of Arkansas and was trained uh, in, in that, uh, where was he? He was trained at uh, Northwestern. Uh, and when his book came out in 1969, Black Theology and Black Power, uh, we had powerful conversations about that text, very incisive wrestlings with that text. Uh, and it has everything to do with trying to keep track of that slice of black religious traditions, a slice of the black church that has always been concerned about telling the truth and concerned about the sufferings of people and willing to take risk in what they say and what they do. But that's always a slice. I mean, for the most part, most religious traditions, unfortunately, tend to accommodate themselves to domination. Um. I want to ask you sort of to expand upon the role of the black church. Um, people use it as sort of a place of refuge. Could you speak on why the history is so powerful and just like what people get out of hearing, you know, the coming togetherness of, of what the church represents? Well, I mean, the early formation of black culture took place under conditions of terrorism uh, so that if you don't have the right to read or write, you don't have the right to worship God without white supervision. Uh, you have no control over land or territory. You have no rights, no liberties. All you could do is steal away at night underground, ring shout and hold hands, lift your voice, sing songs, and have various uh, religious rituals. Uh, so that Du Bois says the black church predated the black family because very difficult to sustain black families when your members of family were sold in various parts of, uh, of the country. Uh, so that I think the crucial thing was the music. I think, it was, I think black music is the greatest tradition in the modern world that confronts chronic catastrophe with unbelievable creativity and compassion. 
so that the church itself is a musical institution. The preacher's musical, the ushers are musical, uh, uh, the choirs themselves are, of course, musical. And by music, I don't mean just producing sound, but I mean sustaining a force when you are being pushed back by some of the most powerful social forces in the world, slavery and lynching and Jim Crow and self-hatred and self-doubt and so forth. So it was really in the churches where we black people could really forge a self-respect and a self-confidence and a sense of self-determination at our best. I mean, a lot of times the churches didn't do that, but that was a space where you can do that. Uh, there's no other place to do that. I mean, that was how barbaric and bestial and brutal uh, white supremacy uh, was under slavery, and then, of course, slavery by another name under Jim Crow Sr. Now we're dealing with Jim Crow Jr. in the present context with the um, prison industrial complex mass incarceration regime, vast underemployment, under mass underemployment, uh, unemployment. I mean, it just goes on. Police shooting our young brothers and sisters down like they dogs. Uh, the level of domination, oppression, and the level of psychic warfare and spiritual warfare against black people is, uh, is really quite immense. Uh, can you talk about sort of, as, as far as you're concerned, what are the lasting effects of some of the liberation movements? I'll throw out a couple of names like SNCC, Black Liberation Army, uh, Black Panther Party, the Deacons of Defense. What are sort of like the vestiges of their legacies that you see? Well, first is spiritual. The, 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 the power of standing up and being willing to die for freedom. See, that's always a threat to the powers that be. And every great manifestation of black radicalism, you've had a group of black people who love black people enough that they were willing to live and die for them. That's a, sp more, that's a moral and a spiritual issue. It has political consequences, but you can't have movements for freedom unless you have people who are willing to shed their blood as a way of fertilizing that movement for freedom. And that's what you had with SNCC. That's what you had with uh, ISCLC, Martin Luther King Jr.'s or That's what you had with the Black Panther Party. That's what you had with a whole, you had the Revolutionary, Relief uh, Revolutionary Workers, General Baker and, and others. Um, all of these examples of black people who love but black people were so intense that they were willing to tell the truth about their suffering and then live and die to try to overcome that suffering. Um, I want you to talk about, if you can, some of, uh, what, what do you feel that are, are some of the valid critiques of the liberation movement? I know in the, in the Black Panther Party there was a lot of sexism going on and that sort of, along with the external politics, the Cointel Pro led to the sort of the, you know, explosion of, of the organization. Talk to me about what do you think are some of the valid critiques No, I think Waldo, what's my dear brother's name? Waldo Martin, is that his name? I think it's his name, a towering historian at Berkeley. He and another brother wrote a wonderful book on the Black Panther Party. Um, I have a great love for the Black Panthers. 
Uh, there's no doubt that they got caught in machismo identities. So it's not just a matter of viewing women as objects of sexual conquest or thinking that somehow only men ought to be in positions of power and authority, but it's also getting caught in spectacle. So you get a black machismo spectacle that's projected on television, that's projected uh, over the waves. And once you feel as if you've got to conform to the image in the spectacle on TV, then it takes the focus away from very mundane things. That's why the breakfast party, or the, breakfast, the breakfast program that I work with was very important because it was outside of the spectacle. You there with the precious children every morning. The press not there, you don't have the, the cameras, they're not there, you're there because you love the children. Same is true with the work with the elderly and community services and what have you, you see. And that was Sister Erica and, and the others who introduced that, it was a beautiful thing. David Hilliard, very important in this regard. So that uh, the, the sexism, the patriarchy was very real and needed to be radically called into question. And these days we've got to embrace our precious gay brothers and lesbian sisters and bisexuals and precious trans people. Uh, Huey wrote that famous essay on homophobia, so that's a nice starting point, but transphobia is something we got to hit head on too. At the center, I think, in so many ways, is still capitalism and imperialism. No, I think the Panthers were right about that. Um, what's your fondest memory, sort of as a youthful protester and activist, what's one memory or maybe an image that sticks in your head to this day? Mm. Well, when I was 14 at the Martin Diet, we organized a uh, citywide boycott uh, to make sure we had black studies in high schools. Sacramento, Glenn Jordan from Sac High, from JFK, Kennedy High, Michael Mann was at Burbank, Kenneth Jones was at Sac High. We, we formed a beautiful network. And at the, so young, we were able to have such impact. It was like, ooh, well, this activism can generate some, some change here. Because the idea of having black studies in high school was unheard of in Sacramento. Just like it was relatively unheard of on college campuses until San Francisco State initiated in 1969. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, political prisoners? Now, the United States has taken the stance that political prisoners don't exist here, yet around the world they acknowledge that there are political prisoners around the world. So what's your, what's your thoughts on political Well, the U.S. government has told hundreds and hundreds of lies. And one of the lies they continue to tell is that there are no political prisoners in the United States. It's, it's ridiculous. We've got some heroic folk who come out of the black liberation movement who have been in prison for a long time. Brother Mumia, Brother Sandiata, the host of folk. Uh, we still got Sister Asada down in Cuba. Uh, uh, these were warriors who ran up against the repressive apparatus of the U.S. government, not just the FBI, the CIA abroad, but also the, they got special police operations. You know, Who killed Brother Fred Hampton? Who killed Brother Bobby H Hutton in, in Oakland? You see, these were, uh, these were murders that were, that were committed by 
the U.S. state against the black freedom movement. And so uh, I think it, the idea that there are no political prisoners uh, is, is, is nonsensical. And we can generate all kind of evidence to show that empirically as well as anecdotally. Uh, I want to ask you, um, you deal with a lot of people, you engage, you do uh, around the globe. What is your message to the next generation of sort of uh, a radical uh, people who want to sort of pick up where you left off and sort of do the work, continue the work that you do? What is your message to the next mm -hmm. generation of leaders? No, I think the younger generation needs to know that they can't, that they come from a great people, that they, they come from a grand tradition of a great people who were truth tellers and witness bearers. They didn't have brands, they had causes. Uh, they didn't have PR strategists. They had voices from the past that gave them inspiration to think critically, act courageously with a sense of history, the Sankofa sensibility, be in contact with the best of the past in order to be a stronger force for good in the language of John Coltrane so that the future could be different. I think these days, you know, you have such a market-driven culture that uh, people are much more concerned about their careers than their callings. They're much more concerned about their brands than the cause. They're more concerned about image as opposed to substance. And uh, they need to know that, see, Harriet Tubman, she didn't have a brand, she had a cause. Martin King, he didn't have a brand, he had a cause. Uh, okay, uh, a, a few more things. Um, you, uh, again, you, you're involved in, in politics. What, what is your take on, on, on sort of what's happening today? Do you feel that there is, uh, there is room for, for the radical tradition to sort of foment itself and step onto the mainstream? Well, the best book's been written by Sister Kianga Taylor on this uh, Black Lives Matter, the Black Liberation Movement. She's absolutely right when she talks about the times are ripe for the black radical tradition to come alive in a serious way. Uh, the Movement for Black Lives, number of different organizations uh, are exemplifying in many ways what the black radical tradition is. You read their platform, you can see the history of the black radical tradition informing where they are at present. So they'll talk explicitly about capitalism and its ties to grotesque wealth and equality. They talk explicitly about the U.S. government, the national surveillance state. They'll talk about drone strikes killing children in Yemen and Pakistan and Somalia. Uh, that they'll talk about uh, um, uh, the issues of homophobia, talk about the ways in which white supremacy still operates inside of the souls of black people, the need of solidarity of peasants in Mexico, workers in Brazil, solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters against the vicious Israeli occupation, uh, talk about solidarity with our Dalit brothers and sisters, the so-called untouchables in India. All of this is part of the platform and the agenda and it's a beautiful thing to behold. The question is, how does the black radical tradition come alive, remain vital and vibrant at the present moment? And the only way you do it is by being it, by example, by living it. And that includes 
serious intellectual work, serious spiritual work, serious moral work, but in the end, you have to organize. You got to institutionalize. Well, I have, I have two more questions. Um, one of the critiques is that, uh, is that the sort of the black radical tradition cannot function inside of academia. Is that something that, that you necessarily believe? Do you feel that the, the foundation cannot be laid there, that it may be taken to the streets? Or is it something that has to be organic, uh, sort of from the streets and then maybe come into the, into the university or academia? Well, one, there is no academia without the streets. And there's no black radicals in academia without black masses bringing pressure to bear from the streets. The reason why you have black studies in the, in the academies because you had massive black rebellions in the 60s that created contexts in which people could make sure that truth-telling went beyond just the mainstream. They talked about indigenous peoples and stolen land. It talked about babies and women being violated. It talked about slavery. It talked about working class movements. So that the academy and the street really go hand in hand. Uh, it's no accident that probably the most important articulator of the black radical tradition today as an intellectual is in the academy. His name is Robin D.G. Kelly. Uh, well, it used to be Cedric Robinson. He just died recently, the late, great Cedric Robinson. He was in the academy too. But he was in the academy, but not of it. See, Robin Kelly is in the academy, but not of it. So he's got a job there, but his sensitivities, but his, the lens through which he looks at the world, and the insights that he has are grounded in social movement outside of the academy. The academy has never, ever been on the cutting edge of the struggle for black freedom. So here's my last question. Um, what, what are your thoughts sort of on the black faces in high places, sort of the black politicians, the black intellectuals, who sort of talk the talk and they walk the walk of liberation, but sort of behind the scenes they're making deals and they become collaborators and they don't actually, they don't bring up their own people. Like what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you just got to call it for what it is. You know, if people are willing to sell their souls for a mess of pottage, you call them sellouts. If they're willing to compromise, you call them cowardly, if they're willing to engage in prudential deal-making, then you say, okay, they're very smart and subtle, but let's see whether the people benefit. See, that's the bottom line. Let's see who's really benefiting. See, if the insights are spilling over, people in prison are empowered, then boom, you got the criteria satisfied. If all the attention is just on the individual who's in the academy, then it's just individualistic, narcissistic, hedonistic, and it needs to be called into question. But always draw a distinction between the fruits and the foliage. The foliage is just image, spectacle, and appearance. But the fruits are on the street. Everyday people, are they standing up? Are they waking up? Are they shattering sleepwalking? Because that's what the black radical tradition is. Shatter the sleepwalking of the people, make sure they are not afraid, scared, intimidated, cowardly and complacent, and instead become courageous, willing to fight, willing to throw down, and in the end, for some of us, willing to die. Um, is there a definitive statement that you want to make to some of your longtime supporters on, on the radical tradition, 
know, brother, I think you can cover it in a masterful way. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>